I'll turn again, if you would, this morning to the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 14 through 16 of the fourth chapter of Hebrews. And then we'll focus particularly on verse 14. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And let us pray. Father, again, we come before thee. We, we thank you for all of your holy revelation that, that helps us in our thinking process about your character and your ways and the salvation that is found in your Son. And this morning, as we draw our attention to, to this specific aspect of your revelation, I will pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit and reliance on your Holy Spirit to bring forth your precious word in a way that is honoring to thee, that reflects your character and your purposes, and especially the character of your, your Holy Son. And I, I pray that you would give each of us clarity of thought, give us understanding, and might it be enlightening to our minds, and, and might it increase our devotedness to thy, thy Son and increase our confidence and reliance upon him in the midst of the times within which we live. So I, I thank you for the, the privilege we've already enjoyed of just praising thee and singing to thee, and, and now just pray for your help as we look to your holy word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, move from verse 13 to this little section, verses 14 to 16, our, our minds are again drawn to uh, Christ as, as a great high priest. First mentioned back in chapter 2 and verse 17, where uh, there his mercy is brought out as it relates to his high priestly ministry. His mercy is brought out as it relates to his high priestly ministry, as well as his work on the cross in that capacity as a propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. And also mention is made of him as a high priest of our confession in chapter 3 and verse 1. And I thought Robert Martin kind of had a helpful statement in terms of the flow of thought here. Um, he indicates that there's an encouragement here to, to those who are persevering in entering God's rest. These verses, of course, are transitional, that is verses 14 to 16, reintroducing the theme of Christ's priesthood and anticipating what will follow. Uh, the actual comparison with the Old Covenant priesthood begins in chapter 5. Uh, Peter O'Brien calls this a hinge passage. Our, our short passage, therefore, serves as the conclusion of one section and the introduction of the next, the great central exposition of the high priesthood of Christ. And, and another, a bit more um, on the immediate context, F.F. F. Bruce says, with admonition, 
is coupled positive encouragement. Jesus has already been presented to the readers as a merciful and faithful high priest. And they are now shown how he is the one with whom they can receive all the strength they need to maintain their confession and resist the temptation to go and fall back. And William Lane adds the fearful prospect of of judgment. And when he says the fearful prospect of judgment, I think he's talking especially about verse 13 where it says there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So he says the fearful prospect of judgment that is held out to the community is balanced by the reminder of the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. As Luther puts it a bit more succinctly, he says, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us and moving from verse 13 to verse 14. So the great emphasis in verse 14 in terms of an injunction is let us hold fast our confession So this morning, we want to focus our attention on our Lord's ministry as high priest. And here it's motivation to put into practice the spiritual directive, let us hold fast our confession. So in particular, we want to take note of three aspects of our Lord's ministry as a great high priest, our great high priest. And then it's followed by these words, and we'll take a moment and look at those then. Let us hold fast our confession. So in the first place, I would have you notice the superiority of our Lord's ministry as a high priest. And here I'm thinking especially of the words that begin the text, since we have a great high priest. That's a glorious spiritual reality that's true of all Christians. We have such a great high priest. And that's the reality that we want to have our souls affected with this morning. Uh, One put it that the the adjective great sets the tone for the verse. Everything in this description is used to emphasize the immediate superiority of this high priest. Now, Now keep in mind, at least my understanding of the text, is that the purpose of this description of our Lord's superiority as high priest, it's calculated to deepen our motivation to hold fast our confession. B.F. Westcott wrote the simple fact that we have a high priest is stated first, and then his character and position are described. The description of him as a great high priest is emphatic. Uh, The adjective great here means remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, or effect. Um, Just some other uses here. I won't proliferate quotes here, but it's used of men in high positions in Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's used of uh, men that are prominent for any reason in Mark 10, 43. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. It's used of our our Lord in a verse that affirms his deity, that is, the fact that he is God. And Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God, uh, great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, in this text, the, the outstanding demonstration of his greatness is his transcendence. He passed through the heavens. And we'll develop that theme a bit more under the second main point. However, under this heading, um, in the broader witness of Hebrews, there, there are two factors that facilitate, I think, a greater appreciation for our Lord's greatness. And the first one is this. His greatness is brought out by the, the clear statement of his intrinsic excellency. William Lane says in the description of Jesus as a great high priest, uh, 
The, the term is a qualification of excellence. And you might recall this letter begins by placarding that reality before our minds and our thinking. In Hebrews 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And then it says he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So his greatness is seen here in the excellency of his person by these kinds of descriptions. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. His greatness is also brought out by the fact that he's heir of all things, by his power that he made the world, upholds all things by the word of his power. And also, it's brought out in the redemptive realm in that he had made, uh, after he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But, but secondly, under this heading, the greatness is also brought out, especially by the superiority of Christ to the priests that we read about in the Old Testament. His superiority, comparatively speaking, to the high priest that we read about in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, references made to the ministry of, of high priests in texts like Hebrews, excuse me, Leviticus 21.10, and the priest who is the highest among his brothers. And then Numbers 35, 25, and the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. Numbers 35, 28, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. And in, in Haggai 1.1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the, the, the son of Jehozadak, the, the high priest, saying. Now, in contrast to the Old Testament, uh, Jesus is referred to as the great high priest, Paul Ellingworth comments on the significance of this language that it may anticipate the comparison between Jesus and other high priests, which begins in chapter 5, or it may reflect the author's conviction that Jesus is a high priest of a, an entirely different order. Now, I think that we can say, or at least I would say, that it's not, it's not one or the other, but it's both and. There's a comparison of our Lord with the high priests of the Old Testament, but the comparisons do show that he's of an entirely different order, qualitatively speaking. But Westcott adds, here it probably signifies that Jesus belongs to the entirely different priesthood from that of Aaron's line. And thus his heavenly status and access to God are unique. For most of chapters 5 to 10, Jesus' high priesthood occupies the author's attention. And in them features of his greatness, indeed his uniqueness, will be elucidated. Now if we ask the question, someone might ask the question, hopefully someone would ask this question. Um, in what ways is our Lord's ministry as a high priest greater than those of the Old Testament? Got five answers here. Uh, five answers. How is the high priestly ministry of the person of Christ, how is it greater than the high priestly ministry that we read of in the Old Testament? Five ways. Number one, unlike earthly priests, he was without sin. They were all sinners, but he was without sin. In Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all 
when he offered up himself. He was without sin. The earthly human high priest had to offer up sacrifices first for their own sin. Such was not the case with our Lord, the Lord of the minister of our Lord as the great high priest. Secondly, his ministry in this capacity was um, not temporal but eternal. As one put it, he was appointed by an oath from God, which assures that his priesthood is eternal. In Hebrews 5, 6, it says, just as he also, in another passage, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that phrase is, refer- is repeated in the book of Hebrews, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this, this is why that we have absolute assurance that he can save our souls forever because he perpetually maintains this office of high priest. In, in Hebrews 7.23, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the, the former priests existed in greater numbers. They kept dying, and so they had to be replaced. Unlike them, he abides forever in his ministry as our great high priest. So he's able to save forever those who draw near to him in faith, those who completely rely upon him and his sacrificial death. In, in their behalf. Well, thirdly, his offering is made in the context of a better covenant, of a better covenant. We read in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no, no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. These are features of the new covenant. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. And I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Number four, um, his offering as a high priest is made with superior blood, superior blood. His sacrifice was affected, was effectual and efficacious because it's not the blood of goats and rams, but as the scripture says, it was precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. And in Hebrews 9, 13 It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then a fifth way in which his high priestly ministry is superior to that of those in the Old Testament is His offering was once for all, never to be repeated. Once for all, never to be repeated. We read Hebrews 7, 26. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So in the first place, we see the superiority of our Lord as the great high priest. And this superiority resides in part in the excellency of his person and, and also with his comparison to, those, to the high priestly ministry of those in the Old Testament. Well, a second aspect of our Lord's ministry and his relationship to being a great high priest, and we've noted this already, but it's his transcendence. His transcendence. And we read here that we have a high priest who has passed through the, the heavens. Um, as one put it, the author may have believed that, that heaven had a number of levels. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where the Apostle Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. So the author may have believed that, that heaven had a, a number of levels, but here nothing is said of them or of Jesus' celestial journey. Instead, the emphasis falls on Christ's exalted status. In other words, the emphasis of this particular text is not on levels or realms of heaven, but the emphasis is on the exalted status of Christ in heaven. One said, this high priest is so great because he's gone through the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. Just as the Aaronic high priest went through the veil into the earthly most holy place, so Christ has entered into the very presence of God in heaven itself. And now this reality has already been brought out in the book of Hebrews. His exaltation to the right hand of God the Father in chapter 1 and verse 3, it says when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And also in verse 13 of chapter 1, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. This is, a, this is glorious, I think, at least for two reasons. Number one, it assures our souls that we have ongoing access to the gracious presence of God. The ongoing ministry of the person of Christ at God's right hand assures our souls that we always have access to the gracious presence of God the Father. One wrote, who has gone through translates a Greek participle and signifies the continuing validity of Christ having entered God's presence. The access to the Father that he has obtained is a present, continuing reality for his people. That's why we have boldness to approach the throne of grace because Christ is always there, always at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. So we have continued access to God the Father, the gracious presence of God the Father through prayer. Well then, secondly, it assures our, our souls that because of our union with Christ, we will indeed enter that rest, rest being the, the, the place where there's, there, there's joy and adoration and the worship and the knowledge of the being of God. Jesus, one put it, Jesus' high priestly ministry is the guarantee that God's people will celebrate the Sabbath. Well then, in the third place, I would have you note here our Lord's unique and exclusive qualification for fulfilling this role as a high priest, his unique qualification. Um, you'll notice here, the one who has passed through the heavens is further identified as Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we can observe here two or three things. Number one, the name Jesus especially draws our attention to the, the earthly ministry of our Lord. She shall bring forth the Son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Um, in, in Hebrews it's his earthly ministry. It's his humanity, um, but it's especially connected with his, his sacrificial death on the cross. 
uh, in behalf of the people whom the Father has given to him. Uh, a text that was read a few moments ago by Uriah, uh, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make satisfaction or to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he had to be made like his brethren, with the exception of sin, that, that is full identification with our humanity. And the purpose for this, uh, this full identification was so that he would become a faithful and merciful high priest. And the great fun, his great function, one great function in this role, that is um, solidarity with our humanity, was to take their place on the cross and make satisfaction for their sins. In Hebrews ten nineteen, it says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And again in chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's humanity is set before us as a great incentive to persevere in the living of the Christian life, especially as we contemplate his work on the cross. And it includes the, the shame that he was subjected to in, in effecting the salvation of our souls, but now he's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Well, then secondly, he's referred to as not only Jesus, but the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, this is a title of honor and dignity. Uh, For to which of the angels did he, that is God the Father, did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. But, but then in Hebrews 1.8, there's a clear ascription of deity to his person. This, this title draws our attention to his deity, the fact that he is God. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So it's a title of deity that ensures his glorious kingdom will endure forever and ever. And it's a title that's attributed to him here by the Father. And it's not a reality like, I hope one day he lives up to this name, but rather it's a recognition of who he is, what he is, and what he always has meant. B.F. Westcott noted that the two titles are placed side by side in order to suggest the two natures of the Lord, which include the assurance of sympathy and power. Sympathy connected with his humanity, power connected with his deity. Sympathy commensurate with his humanity, his full identification with the, the struggles and temptations that we go through in this world. There's a real empathy with the afflictions and difficulties one faces in this fallen and sinful world. Then power that's indicative of his being as the eternal son of God. That assures our souls of the absolute success of his purposes for his people. Well, then third, and kind of in a summary sense, this description of him, um, third under this heading, um, as, tr- as fully human and fully divine underscores his unique qualification to undertake the complete work of redeeming our souls. This qualifies him perfectly for this work. As one put it, Christ, however, is able to enter God's presence as our high priest only because he was the eternal son of God who became the fully human Jesus and offered himself to provide purification of sins. 
Philip Hughes says, The competence of him who is our great high priest as redeemer and mediator is assured by the fact he's both Jesus, the son of Mary, and also the son of God. The incarnate son being both truly man and truly God, he's alone qualified to bridge the gulf between sinful man and his holy creator. As divine, he is one with God. As incarnate or human, he's one with man. And as God-man, he's competent to accomplish the great work of reconciliation, whereby harmony between God and man is reestablished. So we have these three aspects of our Lord's ministry as the great high priest, his superiority, his transcendence, his unique qualification. And then in the fourth place, um, these, these considerations, it seems to me, and this is my understanding of the flow of the verse, um, they form a weighty and powerful motivation for practicing the injunction that we can practice the injunction. Let us hold fast our confession. That's, that's the force of the text. Let us hold fast our confession. To hold fast is to remain firmly committed, um, not to waver, not to equivocate. 1 Corinthians 15, I... 15.1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. Hebrews 3.6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope, firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14, we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. And Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the, the persuasion of soul that Christ does and will accomplish his eternal redemptive purposes as our great high priest, that, that's no ground for sloth or passivity or negligence. That's the reason for being faithful. That's the reason that we are able to be faithful. Uh, one says in, in saying hold fast, and the writer urges tenacious endurance in Christian profession. And by the way, the term confession here refers not to the creed or a doctrinal statement. It refers to our profession of faith in Christ especially the fact that he is the son of God. What we're tenaciously holding on to is our profession of faith in Christ, and especially as it relates to the fact that he is truly the son of God. He truly possesses all of the attributes of deity. He is fully God. We, we say firmly committed to that reality. That's what we hold on to. That's the thought of confession here. This is important, I think, in at least two, two respects. Number one, th this language helps us to understand the nature of the Christian life. There's always opposition. The need to hold fast is because there's always forces that are at work to undermine our commitment to Christ, our love for Christ, our delight in the glory of his being. The Puritan John Owen says that great opposition is and always will be made into the permanency of believers in their profession. He goes on, he says, lay hold of a thing and to retain it with all of our might as if we were ready every moment to be taken from us with a violent and strong hand. It's to keep a thing as a man keeps his treasure when it is ready to be seized on by thieves and robbers. This argues great opposition and no small hazard thereon ensuing. Profession, that is profession of faith and trust in Christ, will be assaulted and pressed by all manner of hazardous and dangerous oppositions. And if the house be not well secured, it will fall. If our profession be not well guarded it will be lost he says it's our duty in the midst of all oppositions to hold firm and steadfast until the end but number two and a little more positively and this again i'm quoting from owen 
As believers, we have great encouragement unto and assistance in the constancy of our profession from the priesthood of Christ. That is, the nature of the high priestly ministry of Christ gives us great confidence and great encouragement of soul. We can hold fast because we're not relying upon our own resources. We're relying upon what he has done and what he is doing in our behalf. We can hold fast because we have such a high priest that has passed through the heavens. Now, if we ask the question why did here's test question number one uh, why did Jesus ascend into heaven well I mean what was his purpose for ascending into heaven and being at the right hand of God the Father here's at least one clear answer from Hebrews 9 Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us why did he ascend to the right hand of God the Father to appear in the presence of God for us. That is to say, to appear in the presence of God for all the people whom the Father has given him, for all the people that he has purchased with his own blood. That's why he went there. Now, if we ask the question, he appears there, what is he doing? Well, at least one clear biblical answer, he prays for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He appears there, and now he is praying for us. The next question is, what is he praying? I mean, what is the content of his prayer? I mean, I know what I pray for myself at times. You probably know what you pray for yourself at times. Is Christ praying the same thing at the right hand of God the Father that you're praying and that I'm praying for myself? Maybe. It just depends on what you're praying for yourself. But here it is. And, and, and here, I, I believe that his words to Simon Peter and Luke 22 are, are an index for knowing what, what his prayer is for all believers. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded per permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. That's the content of his prayer. I'm praying that your faith may not fail. So what I'm saying is we have great encouragement to hold fast our confession because we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's at the right hand of God the Father for us. He's appeared there and he's interceding perpetually for us that our faith may not fail. And we may conclude his prayers are always effectual. They, they always receive their answers. He's praying that all whom the Father has given him would be faithful until the end. And that is true for you and I, is to the good of our own souls. Well, let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you that we have such a great high priest, and we have such encouragement to hold fast our confession and pray that you would increase our, our delight in him, our devotedness to him, our communion with him, our commitment to him. And I, I pray you would take these considerations that we have interacted with and, and apply them to our own souls for your honor and for, for your glory, for our own growth and grace, for our own increased delight in, in the glory of your holy son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.